Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Ketan Joshi. It's great to see you, Ketan. I assumed you would have huge rings and bags under your eyes right now, but <laughs> the fact you're wearing spectacles and maybe some concealer could be hiding <laughs> those things. Tell us what yeah. you're thinking about now, what's preoccupying you, what's dynamizing things for you. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm currently sort of being buffeted by the wave of post-COP um, stands for Conference of Parties, and it's this annual climate meeting that happens uh, in this sort of selected country, and it's really just like this absolute monster of a time. Uh, everybody puts their reports out all at the same time. Uh, so, you know, my job, I'm a comms person in climate in the climate world, um, so I help, like, organizations like charities ngos research groups etc activists uh put these reports out but at the same time i'm a commentator and a writer and an analyst myself so i'm trying to suck in all these reports these new other reports that other people have put out as well uh and so every year what i do now is i make this big list this google doc of all the stuff that i'm going to look at after cop uh, and what it what it means is that after COP, it's quite busy anyway, but it's really fun busy because this is not my day job. Uh, this is just me enjoying the work of other people whose work I really appreciate and going through what they've found and being able to share it. Um, so it's like busy, but, but really good. Um, I can be a bit more specific as well because um, uh, the thing that I was most recently working on um, is really interesting. Uh, there was a report, uh, one of the many reports that came out during COP. Um, this one was commissioned by Google um, and performed by this huge consultancy called Boston Consulting Group or BCG. Uh, and in it, they claimed something quite remarkable. They basically said uh, you could reduce global emissions by, uh, I think it was, five to 10 percent by 2030 this is seven years away uh the current projections have us increasing emissions by about one to two percent to 2030 um in the absolute best case based on current policies maybe they would fall by about one percent which is nowhere near what needs to happen um so i was really blown away by the statistic i was like wow okay you know but it's a consulting group, and I was like, oh, I bet they did some dodgy, I bet they did some dodgy analysis. So I went down the rabbit hole of hyperlinks and reports and research, and I found out that what they did was they asked their consultants roughly when you talk to your clients um, and they're using artificial intelligence for something, how much do emissions reduce by? And their vibe was that it was about 5 to 10%. And so they went, okay, we'll just apply that to the entire planet's emissions. Um... <laughs> and just to interrupt, does that figure include the vast amount of energy that artificial intelligence itself requires in order to work? No, no, yeah. it doesn't. Oh. Uh, so, you know, this is, a, <laughs> this is the key problem, right, for them. Um, and so, uh, like, they 
linked to this in a piece in Fortune that was published yesterday. Uh, and they say research shows AI could reduce global emissions by 5 to 10%. And you go down the rabbit hole of links and it's not research. It's uh, they just kind of had a vibe and they applied that to the entire planet's fossil fuel economy. Uh, and so I was quite shocked. By that. I was just like blown away um, by how dodgy that was. Uh, but it absolutely fits in with this sort of new wave of hype uh, and exaggeration. You know, to, a year ago, two years ago, when you looked at all the side events at COP, they were all blockchain stuff, right? So it was like blockchain can help you manage your carbon offsets or, you know, look at your supply chain and that sort of stuff. There wasn't a single blockchain one I could find on the list of side events this year but I found six AI and sort of eight like quasi related to AI, you know, sort of uh, machine learning or, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like variations of that same theme. Uh, so it's kind of the new thing. Uh, and it's a worry because, you know, blockchain was a bit scammy, but it was at least in its, in its form as a distributed ledger, it wasn't that bad in terms of energy consumption Whereas, uh, you know, <laughs> with AI, you've got like, uh, there was a study that came out actually a couple of days ago that tried to d- at least have a rough guess at quantifying generative AI. So, you know, the the tools where you type in, show me a dog wearing an astronaut outfit on the moon or something, and it gives you, it gives you like a really crappy estimation of that. And then, or, or the text ones, which I know for sure, actually, a lot of my writing has been used in the training data sets. So it doesn't make me feel particularly generous towards the entire industry, <laughs> um, knowing they've nicked my stuff to to make inferior versions of it. Um, but uh, the, you know, generating those queries uh, has a, a sort of an energy cost that's roughly equivalent to with images, for instance, it's a, it's sort of the equivalent of a full charge of an iPhone, right? Just for just for a sort of a, a, a sort of bundle of images. Uh, so it's a massive cost. Uh, a lot of the AI applications for climate solutions that they talk about are not uh, are not generative, so they're not like creating sort of images or text, but they're sort of being applied to large data sets. They're being used to optimize, say, for instance, the uh, uh, flight that you might book. So Google has this example of um, uh, booking flights in a way that minimizes the emergence of these things called contrails, which is like, you know, those sort of white streaks in the sky. Uh, amusingly, like there's a conspiracy theory about that being like having mind control of vaccines or stuff in it. But in reality, they actually are quite dangerous and harmful. They just literally, they just cause climate change. You know, like they contribute to uh, to warming in a very specific and unique way. Uh, and and so Google is like, look, we can use AI to minimize the emergence of these contrails, but they would never, they would never implement a tool that discourages you to take a flight uh, and that encourages you to find an alternative. And, and uh, also, ironically, the conspiracy theorists about those trails are so-called skeptics about climate change. yeah exactly (laughs) which is just so ridiculous because it's like you don't need the conspiracy theory uh 
they just they just materially harmful in reality. Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't have to have a story around it. So yeah, I've just been thinking about um this is really uh it really ties into the big thing I want to focus on next year, mm-hmm. which is power, which is which is my old haunt, you know, which is uh electricity and, and power consumption and grid dynamics. For the past few years I've been focusing on corporate climate claims and greenwashing and carbon offsets and and um uh you know dodgy dodgy false solutions and stuff like that. Uh, but, but next year, what's really going to be happening is a really nice convergence of the two things. Uh, and so, yeah, that's my, that's my current focus. Well, um, I'm going to provide a link in the notes to this podcast to your excellent website where not long ago I read your stunning indictment of Netflix's claims about its carbon footprint. Could you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> You've already indicted Google. They're yeah. in the dock. <laughs> <laughs> it ties in so perfectly, actually, with what I discovered yesterday with that AI nonsense, uh, because <clears throat> Google uh, Google and Microsoft, together their power consumption has, has doubled in uh, a three- to four-year period. Uh, and and we're talking terawatt hours here, right? So this is country-sized levels of, of power consumption uh, for Google and Microsoft to run their cloud services. This is Microsoft Teams. And by a country, we're not uh, talking about Switzerland. We're talking about the UK, for example. Uh, well, yeah, I would need to check the numbers. But uh, yeah, I mean, like we're like sort of mid-sized countries, right? Like they're, they're very large numbers. Google is... Uh, Google is 20 terawatt hours, I think. And uh, I think Microsoft off the top of my head was 18 for the most recent data, if anyone wants to look up the power consumption. So it's growing, right? And these are data centers, these are large hyperscale data centers uh, that have sort of been touted as very efficient, but that efficiency has plateaued uh, in the past sort of five years. You, you sort of, uh, you're not really, they're growing much faster than they're becoming more efficient, which means the total absolute amount of power they're consuming increasing quite rapidly and netflix is really all part of this and the great big the great big mystery company is, is amazon uh so amazon and netflix together uh amazon uh has basically been running a very large fleet of online hosting you host your website on there you host you you know you click on a pdf on a website it's probably going to have the letters aws somewhere in the in the url for that that stands for amazon web services uh, and their total power consumption is an absolute mystery. Uh, we just don't know what it is for Amazon. We don't know what their emissions are. They've never disclosed them. Uh, we don't know uh, how they change year on year. We don't know whether or not they're reducing them or increasing them. I mean, obviously they're increasing. We don't really need to see the numbers to know that. Uh, and can't, so, can't, please be hmm. reasonable. Jeff Bezos <laughs> yeah. blew into space saw a blue planet mm. and came back saying overview effect. environmentalism yeah. was very important. So I don't know what the problem is. I don't want to go too off track here, but my, one of my most favorite things that happened in recent years is William Shatner, I think was on the same flight yep. and they asked him about it. And, and he was like, I actually felt kind of depressed when I was up there. Like I, I felt like a really, I felt this real grief. It was like one of the most insightful things I've heard William Shatner say uh, outside of when he's 
you know, pretending to be a starship captain. Uh, and, and, and Jeff Bezos just sort of, he, he hears what's going on. The clip is amazing. And he kind of like just shoves William Shatner out of the way. Cause he's like, you know, shut up. You're like ruining this. <laughs> you're ruining this overview effect myth that I really need to maintain here. <laughs> I didn't but know it was I a beautiful moment. That's wonderful. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, look up the video. Hmm. Amazon does provide you know, in the context of neoliberal self-regulation, ho-ho, yep. ports on its commitment to the environment and claims yep. always to have goals in mind. But mm-hmm. what those actually amount to is a bit of a mystery. And, of course, Netflix has long been a mystery by contrast with conventional broadcasters and cable stations in terms yep. of how many people actually watch this stuff and where are yeah. they and what age are they? All the things that you need to know if you're an advertiser but are not so important when you're a subscription-based company. Now that it actually needs advertising because it overreached <laughs> it, and it's having to give profit figures to investors who've been duped up to this point in what yeah. is a huge digital Ponzi scheme, it is telling us things about its audience for the first time. But what about this question of the digital impact, <laughs> of the, uh, sorry, the climate? Yeah. They're both very related, actually. The audience size uh, obviously determines the, the basically the loads on its on its servers, right? This is the number, you know, the number of people watching decides roughly the power consumption um, of data hosting, data transfer. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you can, you can actually kind of infer these things from the, from the emissions numbers. Uh, I've read a lot of corporate sustainability reports um, over the past few years, and Netflix is uh, Netflix discloses more than most, uh, but it does it in a very careful and, 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 and way. Uh, and sometimes, what you get with with these companies that actually are sort of doing an okayish job at disclosure is you start to learn and notice what they're very carefully not talking about, and that is. Uh, where you get your best clues as to what are they trying to hide <laughs> and what are they kind of trying to dazzle you with by providing information elsewhere. Uh, and so with Netflix, they're very good at disclosing what their direct emissions are. So they have an office, uh, they have their own productions, right? So, you know, the set of Bridgerton, you know, a bunch of cars go to that site. They've got a few diesel gen sets on site um, and, you know, they plug in, a hundred lights into the power grid. Um, and so they'll kind of note down all of these things. They've got a good sustainability team that, that, you know, pays attention to this. Uh, and yeah, you know, they're very like their targets center around their own emissions. So their corporate emissions and, uh, some of the productions that they have, uh, it's a hello cat. (laughs) That's a great cat. Uh, the effects, the, the, the sort of, Yeah. And He's so one. I've I've had adult cats only before. He was yeah. my first kitten and I've never I've I've not been accustomed to the kind of mad uh, ravenous desire to eat, <laughs> drink and to destroy that he has. But of course <laughs> he's also got this affectionate side that is That's nice. Magic rookie. Anyway, yeah, sorry. So <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I'll go on. Attending yeah. to uh, defining counting and publicizing yep. their direct yep. production footprint. That's right. And they and what they're really way more coy about 
is what they call scope three. And scope three is basically when they pay for a service from another company for which they're somewhat responsible as a, as a sort of a purchaser, right? So, you know, you, you run, you're, you're sitting there in Netflix and you're like, okay, well, I can't pay for a thousand servers to serve up content all around the world. It's too big. It's too big of a task. So I'm going to ask Amazon to host this for me. We'll pay them a fee. Uh, and then, you know, we've got, you know, a thousand copies of Bridgerton and people can request that and stream it onto their phones or TVs. And these servers are located in different countries. So you can, you can request it from a server that's close to your home. Um, and so what happens is they actually report these emissions in their report, but it's what I would describe as a flat number. You can't tell where the emissions are for which, uh, for which purposes. So some of their scope three emissions are, for instance, their employees taking a flight. Right. This is, uh, you know, uh, somebody, uh, the, the head of the company, like, loves flying, for instance. I think there's an art interview somewhere where, where they're just like, yeah, I, I, like, I, I fly constantly, you know, for work. But you can't break it down. You can't go, okay, well, 10% of their scope through emissions was flying, 80% was for serving up content to people on their phones or whatever. And so, this is a this is a real sort of uh, where you start to discover that they're hiding stuff intentionally, because what they don't want you to figure out is that uh, their scope three emissions, for instance, are sort of uh, growing or falling uh, in a way that could be considered responsible or irresponsible. So they disclose the total amount, but they don't tell you uh, enough that you can start investigating or determining their decisions as a company. Uh, and so there's something else that gets hidden in these numbers. Uh, and again, they disclose it fine for their, for their company themselves, but they don't disclose it for their sort of purchase, like hosting of, of most of their content, which is, if you look at the raw numbers, Netflix's direct emissions are about, I think maybe off the top of my head, 10%. All the rest is what they call scope three, right? Um, and what is happening here is that, Netflix have this deal with Amazon and they sort of say, look, um, these numbers are pretty bad, right? (laughs) Like we, we, you've got these data centers. They're just churning through terawatt hours and terawatt hours of power every single day because it's a lot of content. It's a lot of streaming content that's being watched in a lot of different places. What are we going to do about this? These, these power, these like data centers exist on these grids that have coal fired power stations on them and they've got gas fired power stations on them. And so when you just look at the raw numbers, it doesn't look good. Uh, That's a lot of power uh, coming from a lot of fossil fuel power stations. Uh, You know, like the US is a good example. It's a lot of gas um, and gas is still a fossil fuel, even though it's not as bad as coal. Uh, When you look at the raw numbers, because the absolute numbers are so big, Netflix is looking at it going, oh crap, you know, what are we going to do? And Amazon is like, chill out. Don't worry. We have a solution. And what they do is they buy these things called renewable energy certificates. Uh, and what this does is it says to uh, whoever has purchased the electricity, well, we're going to say that you purchased this electricity directly from a wind farm that was built. Uh, and even though, you know, you've got a hundred power stations attached to the grid and then a hundred people demanding the, the power and it all gets mixed up in this one bucket, this one pool, we're going to say that there's a deal or a contract between one consumer and one generator. 
and you get to claim that you took all of the of the mix of stuff that was pumped onto the grid to provide the power. You're the one who snaffled up the clean bit. And that's what the certificate says. In the physical reality, you get the mix as same as everybody else gets the mix, right? Uh, and so the whole idea when this originated a decade ago was that the cash that happens through that deal, that helps the wind farm get built. That is not the case anymore. Wind farms and solar farms are cheaper than fossil fuels now. They don't need certificates to get built. Uh, like So like even if you say in the circumstance like uh, Amazon and Google are, are doing this to a very large degree at the moment, Microsoft wants to do more of it. What they're doing now is they're building a massive new data center and they're saying, chill out. We're not going to do any of this dodgy renewable energy certificate stuff anymore. We're going to do something better. We're going to pay for a wind farm ourselves. So the whole idea is they're like, don't worry, you know, we're not like, we're not adding any extra demand to the grid uh, or, or rather we are, but we're meeting it entirely from this new wind farm that we're going to say is this is our wind farm that we built to power our new data center. Um, and what happens in that scenario is that instead of that new wind farm cutting into the existing fossil fuel generation, it just meets new demand. Mm-hmm. So uh, I provided an example of this in Ireland. Ireland is where Meta, uh, Microsoft and Google, you know, they've like set up a lot of their like business headquarters in Ireland um, due to all the tax incentives, but they've also set up a lot of data centers. And so Ireland's emissions were falling pretty fast. They were having a really good build out of wind and solar, particularly wind, sort of halfway through last decade. Three years ago, they stopped falling. The emissions stopped falling. And the reason is... They didn't stop building wind and solar. It's just that those wind and solar farms are now meeting new demand from data centers. So just to circle back to Amazon. (laughs) So Netflix is saying to Amazon, okay, listen up. We've got a thousand, a hundred thousand new customers and we need a new data center to meet their demand. Uh, What happens is Amazon is like, okay, cool. With a service we offer is that we can pay for a wind farm and say to you, that the, the new power demand from your thing is zero emissions. Uh, and so Netflix is like, cool, okay, we're going to put that down in, us, in, our, in our climate report. We're going to smush it all up into scope three and no one's going to be able to tell or detect um, or, or sort of uh, like ask what's going on. And then on top of this, this is probably the worst thing that Netflix do in their emissions report is... They set a target, right? So this is a big part of like corporate sustainability, corporate reporting over the past sort of half a decade is setting a target, right? Setting a net zero, they call it a net zero target, which is the whole idea is um, you will reduce some of your emissions and then you'll balance out the rest of it through some like removing carbon from the atmosphere or planting trees or some other dodgy thing, right? Um, I think people generally understand that the net in net zero is not really well to be trusted, (laughs) but what people don't really understand is that there's actually this whole nest of other tricks that occur. Um, And these tricks are not really consumer targeted, right? They're targeted at investors, like shareholders, um, regulators, because they're much more complicated and they're much more tricky. uh, And they're really evil in a clever way, right? So what Netflix do, just to give you an example, uh, is they set a target for these scope three emissions that I mentioned, right? Um, and they're pretty high. Um, Netflix sort of reports them as not having changed uh, over the past sort of uh, three years. 
uh, and I was a bit curious about it. I, my suspicion is that they're probably demanding more data center space. They're probably consuming more energy. Uh, but those new additional bits are kind of Amazon is just like, yeah, 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 it's clean. You know, we built a wind farm, just chill out. <laughs> However, they do still have a bulk of scope three emissions that aren't really reduced, right? Because Amazon can only build wind farms so fast. Um, and so what they do is they're like, okay, we've got a pretty big chunk here and we're going to set a target for 2030 for our scope three emissions. And we're going to reduce them by 50%, um, which it's like, okay, that sounds, you know, not too bad, right? Like this is global climate goals. Um, if you kind of take the entire planet, we've got to kind of cut our emissions in half by uh, 2030 um, to, you know, sort of align with the 1.5 degree goal, which is limiting the warming of earth to only 1.5 extra degrees, um, <laughs> you know, compared to what it was pre-industrial. Uh, and so uh, it's you kind of read these numbers and you're like, oh, we're cutting in half, you know, that's substantial. That's not bad. Uh, and of course, you know, you look at, you start reading the fine print a bit and it's what they call an intensity target, which is not emissions, but emissions per how many dollars of, of cash they earn. Now, <laughs> they set a base year of, uh, so, so they compare the 50%, not to what it is now, but actually 50% compared to 2019. And I was like, huh, that's interesting because what happens with these corporate targets is that anytime you start seeing a whole bunch of like caveats and like weird, like, why is that the base year rather than now? Like, why is it an intensity target? Um, and the answer is always very fun because it's, they're always trying to hide something, right? And in this case, what happened is that from 2019 to now, Netflix's revenue nearly doubled make nearly twice as much money than they did in 2019. Um, their scope three emissions have stayed the same. So when you look at the math of this, Netflix's scope three emissions intensity, which is emissions per revenue, cut itself in half, not by changing emissions, but by making twice as much money. So in the year that they have set the target to reduce it by 50%, they have also hit the target. So... <laughs> <laughs> so what happened here is that some very clever sustainability person sat down at their desk, opened up Microsoft Excel and said, okay, what's our revenue? What's our scope through emissions? What's actually happened to intensity? Well, it's fallen in half. Like we're making twice as much money, but our scope through emissions hasn't changed. And again, that hasn't changed, not because it's had, they have a lower climate impact, but because Amazon is giving them these renewable certificates, right? Which you can't tell from their climate report. So like, that's really deceptive, right? To sort of have this really big song and dance about how they've set a target. Look at us, you know, we're, we're responsible. Like Netflix sees themselves as way more responsible than the average company, let alone the average streaming company, right? They've got this big panel of like climate experts, They've got this whole page about how they do like so many shows and movies about climate change. They really want to be the sort of millennial climate carers, you know, uh, and they don't want to change anything about their business. Um, so like for their direct emissions, it's, it's pretty bad as well. So not even talking about like the scope three stuff, they've got all these electric vehicles in their ads uh, but the actual deployment of electric vehicles is almost nil. 
um, on their on their production sites. I mean, your revenue doubled. Like, you know, spend some of that money on <laughs> well, electric I mean, vehicles are becoming cheap now. <laughs> just to jump in for a moment, if I could, to make a couple yeah. of parenthetical remarks that might help some people with context. The first is that the fundamental failure of the Netflix business model was it didn't understand that the money you make from screen production is through distribution. Costs a lot to make stuff. It costs a lot to exhibit stuff, uh, if you're talking about traditional cinema or television. But the money that's made is the people who actually own the pipes. And they didn't invest in that. And that's why when people say, oh, look at Amazon Prime, it's minimal next to Netflix and its success, I think you've got to be fucking kidding me. Amazon is (laughs) laughing all the way to the bank thanks to Netflix. The other remark is to go back, back, back 150 years to William Jevons and the so-called Jevons Paradox, which was about the emergence and development of coal in Britain. Uh, And really, the Jevons paradox applies beautifully to what you've been describing, Uh, not just with reference to Netflix and Amazon, but data centers in general. Namely, yes, okay, emissions are being reduced per capita, as it were, per unit, in the interests of really keeping costs down for the finance industry, which is the industry Mm -hmm. that really matters here, along with the military. It's the military and the finance sector that insist on, you know, quick and secure transactions. They determine what happens to the rest of us. They want it to be cheaper. And for propaganda purposes, everybody wants it to be cleaner. Both those things make for greater efficiency, but they also make for greater use. And so Jevon's point was that you can reduce the unit cost of extracting and distributing and using coal, but the actual amount of money spent on coal will increase because the unit, as the unit costs go yeah. down, so does the uh, deployment. And it's that Jevons paradox applies brilliantly in this instance, right? That, there's a, uh, there's a, um, I've got to mention uh, a beautiful example of this uh, because, you know, uh, Jevons paradox is certainly one of those things that like regulators have been really missing. Uh, you need to regulate against it, right? Because it's such a powerful and, and common phenomenon. It's not a guaranteed thing, but you, but it happens a lot enough that you should stop it. Uh, LEDs, the switch from you know fluorescent light bulbs to LEDs. Uh, it's it's you know materially it reduced uh, household lighting power consumption by a pretty decent chunk, uh, but it has been somewhat offset uh, by. <laughs> um, the usage of LEDs in, in sort of these really obscene applications. And there's one, there's a really great writer who I recommend. His name is Lloyd Alter. He does really good. He does really good. He's got a Substack on, on, on greenwashing. I recommend um, uh, checking it out. Um, and it, he uh, brings up this example uh, of, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. There's this huge ball. Uh, there's this huge like sphere. I think it's in LA and it's covered in LEDs. Uh, the whole thing is is this spectacular light show of LEDs, this ball, uh, and you know, you can uh, you can just sort of see. It. Hang on a sec, I'm just going to cough. Done. Um, you can see this huge ball in LA, just kind of sitting there, like it looks like a basketball or a big smiley face. Uh, and he calculates that it undoes the energy efficiency savings of basically like a small town. 
by having this ha- by having this LED. You couldn't do this with fluorescent light bulbs, right? Like to to create a screen that is circular and has like a, a shocking power consumption. Uh, but LEDs have enabled this application to just kind of uh, have this spectacular light show type thing. Uh, that's just this huge ball sitting in the middle of a city. <laughs> uh you know th- this is a this is a profitable arena right like this is a this is a huge it's popular it gets a lot of media attention it makes it makes people who do music want to have their concert inside it uh and so it, it returns a profit um and th- so this is like this is like Jevons paradox but also the 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 sort of like cash drivers that make it worse than than its normal occurrence right so it's not like you have it's not like when when LEDs were introduced, people suddenly went, oh, okay, well, now I'm going to have five light bulbs in my room instead of one. Like, it just, you know, there was a saving there. Um, but but in other parts, it's because you don't get more profit in your life if you have five light bulbs in your bedroom. Um, but if you're a company that's building a venue, you get way more profit if you have, like, an absurd, over-consuming LED light show. Um, yeah, and, you know... <laughs> Netflix, of course, is a is a similar thing. Uh, a similar thing. So, Kitana, I'd I'd like to get personal for a moment. Uh, I want to attack you, and yeah. see how you respond. It sounds like a kind of macho game. It's not meant that way. No, go so, for it. Judging from your accent and what I know of you, you spent much of your life in Australia, and one could argue that Australia per capita is the climate criminal of the post-war era. First of all, with coal exports to Japan as it industrialized, and then in the last 20 years to China and latterly India, because China and India are, the, along with the United States, the corporate uh, climate, sorry, not corporate, the climate criminals of this moment, not mm-hmm. over lengthy periods where it's Western Europe and to a lesser extent the Soviet Union and its former satellites, but of the moment. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in that context. Now you're living in Norway, which has a sovereign wealth fund that makes the Saudis look like amateurs, but no one talks <laughs> about because yeah. Norway is a good uh, citizen and doesn't need to buy the respect and love of everybody else through football uh-huh. and cricket and whatnot, right? Yeah. And the Norwegians uh, got this sovereign wealth fund, which they shepherded and looked after properly, unlike the British idiots with North Sea Oil where it was used to make sure that even though taxes were kept down, social services were maintained by (laughs) basically selling every conceivable asset. Yeah. Uh, But it's very dirty money. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you not to make you responsible (laughs) for that history of those two countries, but to ask you the part that that plays in your biography, the fact that you have lived experience intellectually, politically, scientifically, of these two, in a sense, well-regarded Western countries that mm. are climate criminals. Yeah, this is this is such a fascinating uh, comparison, right? Like, and, and of course, you're absolutely right about both countries. Uh, it's, you know, uh, we, both countries have uh, are in the top five. When you look at amount of exported emissions just as a flat number mm-hmm. which you can roughly use as a as a as a sort of proxy for the amount of climate damage suffering to living things on earth and damage to the biosphere and ecosystems that we that we profit from uh 
Norway is number one by a ridiculous margin. Um, part of it is because we have a small population and the other part is we export a large amount of oil and gas. Uh, Australia is number five. Uh, Australia exports a lot of coal. It has a higher population, but just the volume of coal is massive. Exports a bit of gas too, but the sort of emissions metrics on that are different. And in the in between, you've got a bunch of Middle Eastern countries and the US. Uh, and so, you know, this is this is uh, obvious for Australia. I think Australia probably gets a little more recognised for being a sort of coal pit. Um, and, and Norway, here in Europe, I think I was a little bit surprised. I think Norway is a bit more recognised for its, its, its status as a petrostate than I expected. But it still gets away with way more than it should, right? Like we sort of attend global climate meetings uh, and we and we harp on about, uh, you know, it, achieving the 1.5 degree goal and things like that. Uh, there was an article yesterday, very amusing. Uh, the oil fund, of course, has a lot of cash in it and it makes investment decisions, right? Uh, and, and there are people who who argue that the oil fund should be making investment decisions aligned with climate goals. And they have really encountered this this tension of like, well, all our money comes from selling oil and gas, but we don't really want to invest in like, say, you know, the worst like kind of coal mining and coal new coal power plants and stuff like that. Um, they divested from uh, a project in, I think it was Brazil off the top of my head because it was, uh, because it was, you know, unlocking new fossil fuels. And then the day before, of course, uh, the new projections for the amount of money that we spend on fossil fuel extraction, exploration, uh, production came out uh, and it's a record not only is there a record high amount of money that we will spend digging up fossil fuels next year the amount by which it's a record is a record uh which <laughs> which is incredible wow that's the kind of we love right <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> so so here's the interesting thing right um this is uh, i find this so fascinating climate denial is is surprisingly high in norway uh is it i didn't know yeah Uh yeah so so flat out denial of the science pretty high we're in the sort of top few right which is surprising to me um but the numbers are very interesting as soon as you get into different sectors right so uh if you ask uh if you survey norway about climate impact expected climate impacts norwegians do not expect themselves to suffer climate impacts in the short term in the next few years, in the next 10 years. We disproportionately expect ourselves to suffer impacts in the next 40 years, 40 to 50 years. So basically the mindset is it's coming, but not now. We're fine, right? Like we've got we've got a while. Uh, we don't deny that it's coming, but it's gonna it's gonna take a long time. Uh, and so th- like this combination of like a lot of people deny that the problem exists. And also a lot of people don't think of the people who do think the problem exists, not many of them think it's going to, it's going to come here soon. Right. Disproportionately. There's an unusually high number of people who are like, we're fine. Nothing's going to happen here. And then you see it reflected culturally. So uh, there's not a lot of um, climate change, of course, is an issue in in media and politics here, Uh, but ending the fossil fuel extraction that we engage in and particularly focus on Equinor as a company, which is a partially state owned corporation, um, which, which is increasingly becoming and behaving like a standard, you know, Shell or BP or Exxon 
then you know that's just not allowed, right? Like Equinor is a beloved is a beloved company in this country. It's in the structure of feeling like the oil industry in Mexico. It's it's inside yeah. the lived experience of people in exactly. Mexico. The nationalization of the oil industry in the forties took place through grandmothers uh, selling off their chicken chickens and taking out a partial subscription to the nationalization costs. Yeah. That's how powerful these things can be, right? It's it, it changes the mindset, and and I have a lot of friends in Australia who who sort of say something like, you know, we should. We should be like Norway, you know. We should uh, we should uh, get all the get all the cash that uh, is coming from selling fossil fuels and put it towards schools and healthcare and, and welfare. <laughs> uh, and I'm just like, look, you know, remember what it does to you. Remember what it does to your head. Uh, <laughs> like it really changes. You, you become you become infected in the same way that someone who works in an office in Equinor's office might be. Um, You're embedded to the whole thing. It's part of your national identity mm -hmm. i think yeah. yeah sorry to interrupt and, and so no no that's a good point and it's actually really relevant because in australia you can you can yell at a coal miner you can really yell at a coal miner and you're not going to really get a sort of muted awkwardness you're going to get a lot of people who support you uh the the sort of the lack of connection between the blood money from selling fossil fuels and most australian people it makes a difference uh you can there's really there's a lot stronger public opposition to fossil fuel extraction in Australia than there is in in here in Norway, um, and so you know this is the this is the dynamic of cash right like the blood money from I, from selling fossil fuels. I actually have a my next blog post uh, will be specifically about this uh, because you know just seeing Norway's uh, Norway's righteousness at COP is infuriating and you know we we are. One thing that's really worth mentioning here, just quickly, is is um, we sell fossil fuels, and and the act of extracting and providing and selling fossil fuels increases emissions. Right, this is something that has been really well established in research. Is that when you dig it up and you provide it, when you unlock it from underground, uh, then that results in more of it being burned than if you decided not to do it at all. Uh, it's not going to be one for one. It's not like if you you know. 100 tons of coal if you leave it underground then 100 less tons will be burnt because some of it will get replaced from other sources uh but not all of it right so this entire project of trying to expand how much fossil fuels we're providing into the world yesterday we signed a 10-year agreement with germany this is the biggest i think in three decades that we've ever signed we signed a 10-year supply agreement to get to get gas to germany in 10 years like that volume of gas it shouldn't be burnt if you burn it, you breach Germany's climate goals by a huge margin. Uh, so it's just an outright statement of saying, yeah, we've signed a deal here on paper to fail Germany's climate goals, right? <laughs> it's just an astonishing thing. But it's but also presumably, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, a response yeah. to the mm -hmm. geopolitical context of Russia. Yeah. Germany yeah. had this big deal for Russian gas. Huge. Yeah. That is compromised uh, by the conflict the majority the majority of that has already been replaced by other sources right so this is just ongoing oh this is gas consumption oh, okay yeah right. yeah oh. so this is just like this is basically like yep yeah, we've they've basically solved it they're like the majority of of um gas i mean they still oil is more complicated but the majority of gas in germany it's the the, the biggest thing of course is that germany 
is failing catastrophically to even begin implementing policy to phase out um, burning gas for heating. Uh, and then the second problem is on their power grid, they burn a lot of gas for, for electrical power. Uh, and when the coal plants shut down, you can kind of tell in their heads, they're just like, we'll just burn more gas. Like <laughs> they're really not building wind and solar fast enough. Um, and uh, the nuclear power shut down um, uh, earlier this year, I think it was. Um, and so, yeah, you know, Germany's demand is falling um, because, you know, industry is slowing down there's a lot of very expensive energy um but that's going to go up again as energy gets cheaper um <laughs> as other parts of europe actually have more renewables and energy gets cheaper uh then um yeah it's it's going to be a bit of a disaster in germany um and norway will be standing ready to supply we'll standing ready to disaster. service that disaster <laughs> exactly. time we've got no more than 10 minutes left i wanted to ask you two questions hmm. and then after that throw it to you so that you could add or subtract from the things <laughs> you've already discussed as you wish. Mm -hmm. The first question is one word with a question mark at the end of it, nuclear. <laughs> I, 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 I've been fascinated. I've been extremely fascinated by nuclear for a long time uh, and more in its sociocultural manifestation. Uh, you know, the history of it is interesting, uh, particularly from my background. Uh, I worked in renewables for uh, seven years uh, eight years if you count working for a government agency doing research on renewables. Um, and uh, I, for a good chunk of that, I was doing community engagement around development sites. Uh, a lot of people had no problems with the wind farms we were building, and a lot of people did have major problems with the wind farms we were building. Understandably, you know, very large, big changes to their environment, um, big changes to their community. And most of all, us, a private corporation, sucking in all the benefits of capturing that wind and not sharing very much at all with those communities, which was, of course, the major failure of uh, wind farm development in Australia uh, back in that, in that time period. And so what I discovered is that nuclear power, of course, has a very similar set of issues, which is community opposition, a lot of people feeling like they're bearing the brunt of like risk and change and disadvantage with none of the benefits that you get from generating electrical power and selling it. Uh, of course, nuclear power stations were not sharing, we're not doing any benefit sharing arrangements, right? Like there was uh, either there were these big hulking state owned things in France, or they're owned by private corporations in the U S for instance, uh, very profitable. Uh, and their growth period has essentially stopped. Uh, there was obviously a bunch more reasons than community opposition, safety became far too complicated and far too expensive. Uh, the, just the sort of uh, economic dynamics of industry hit a wall. Um, and so when you look at total global nuclear power, um, it's growing slightly, but it's, it's growing mostly in Asia. Um, China is building a few nuclear power stations. I think India has one or two. And I think there's a couple, there's a smattering elsewhere across the world, like in Poland, in um, Belgium, I think there is. And Finland has one to a uh, plant project. Um, there's a lot of shutdowns. There's a lot of reductions in output in France had a major sort of catastrophe, I guess you could call it. And they, they, they saw a drop in nuclear power output that was greater than the drop in Germany. <laughs> you know, Germany intentionally shut down its nuclear power stations. France, you know, did the equivalent of shutting down its nuclear power stations, but they were just breaking um and like <laughs> you know there was uh planned maintenance there was unplanned maintenance 
Um, and they basically saw a year of like significantly increased gas output. And ironically enough, imports from Germany, um, because, you know, like, you know, sort of German clean power is a lot cheaper. And so they imported a lot of power from Germany. Um, and then their emissions went up. They'd sort of recovered a bit this year, like the lot of nuclear power stations are back online in France. But um, nuclear still has the same problems that it did three years ago, four years ago, right? Um, which is basically, uh, it's um, very, very cost prohibitive. Uh, it's it sort of uh, um, has, still has a lot of social issues. Um, and fundamentally, its advocates have two problems. Um, its advocates tend to lean rightwards and they tend to lean neoliberal. Um, and those two things, first of all, what happens is they tend to be either skeptical or sort of lukewarmist or even just outright climate deniers. Um, when you look at surveys of people who support nuclear power, they sort of, the distribution curve is a bit more in that group. Of course, there are plenty of people who support nuclear for climate reasons, um, increasingly so. But the distribution curve is still enough poking into the right right-hand side of politics that um, there's a lot of people who just deny that climate is a, is a thing that you need to act upon thereby getting rid of one of the main reasons that you may want to build a nuclear power plant in this day and age. Um, and then of course, there's the other force, which is that they tend to be neoliberal, you know, free market companies, corporations, and they don't like what? government intervention. These are government projects if there ever were some. Yeah, so my, exactly. my second question is about <laughs> how people can find your writing. Now, as I said, I'm going to link to your fantastic website, but you've also published lots of articles in prominent, I guess, liberal-leaning, left-leaning entities and a book. So I wondered if you could just give people a a, a jot, better not pardon, <laughs> sorry, give people a, a, an idea of where they might find yeah. know, the products of your research. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You've written many, many books. So I'm sure I'm not, I don't know if you still feel this, you know, however many books you are into your career now, <laughs> but uh, I've written one book and I, and I still feel uh, like, I feel this sense of nervousness or anxiety about revisiting it. And I flicked it open the other day and I was like, damn, this is pretty good. Um, <laughs> so it's like my, my worry was not justified because, you know, uh, it is, it, it remains very, very relevant, this book. Uh, and it's, uh, it's about Australian climate politics, but uh, a big chunk of it is about energy justice and the process of building new clean energy stuff mm-hmm. in a way that is fair uh, and, you know, loved by people enough that they actually support it rather than tolerate it or oppose it. Uh, so uh, I recommend uh, it, it's called windfall unlocking a fossil free future. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, really very relevant. I, I talk a lot about Norway. I talk a lot about the U S uh, so, you know, even if you are not, an Australian interested in Australian politics. Uh, there is a lot in there that is very, very relevant to this time that in terms of development of clean energy that we're seeing. Um, so you can check that out. Um, that's available um, in a bunch of different places. You can just Google it. Uh, I've written um, I've written for a few different outlets. Like there's one in Australia called Renew Economy. I've written some stuff on The Guardian. Not so much recently. Uh, more of it is just going on my blog because my job is a, is a sort of climate communications person. Uh, it's a bit awkward because I deal with these media outlets um, as a in my day job. So I felt like it would be ethically a little bit um, fuzzy to be publishing as a commentator in them as well. Uh, so I've kind of moved a lot of it onto my blog because that just keeps it simple. 
so you can check that out there. I'm also publishing a lot more on LinkedIn. I used to be, I used to use Twitter constantly. Um, Twitter is dead now to me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I now publish a lot more on LinkedIn. I'm on How often Blue do Sky. You think he shaves each day. <laughs> oh God, I don't know. It's 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 um. I I kind of thought I kind of thought X would collapse a bit quicker, but it hasn't, and it makes me a little bit sad. Um, but uh, that's okay. It'll it'll go. It'll go in time. Uh, but uh, yeah, I use Blue Sky, which is a sort of a sort of closed off invite only replacement. Um, but you know, you can find invites everywhere; they're pretty easy to find. So I recommend um, hopping onto that if you have a chance. It's going to go public in the next few weeks anyway, so you can check it out probably by the time this comes out. Fantastic, thanks. So to conclude, are there things that you'd like to add uh, to what we've said or subtract from? <laughs> yeah there is actually um i'm gonna be quick i'm gonna try and do this very quickly but it's a super important thing that didn't get much attention at at the cop um and this is it actually just ties into what you're saying about norway before it's something called loss and damage and i'm just going to very quickly describe what it is and and you can kind of you know your listeners can look it up and read more about it if they really want to loss and damage is the idea of paying for reparations for the impact of, of of your climate causing climate change the u.s has the highest um, volume of of emissions look at everything that's in the atmosphere to date if you split it up by country where did it come from the u.s has the biggest chunk of of the stuff in the atmosphere so they should be you know they should basically have the highest uh um, unpaid debt to the world for causing the most climate change so far and at the most recent cop event they were there you know passionately opposing uh every step to force the people who have emitted the most historically to pay for their to pay for their impacts which is which is gross and evil you can actually calculate this will be in my blog post um about norway you can calculate by the amount of cash that that each country has earned from from selling fossil fuels how much climate debt they owe because you know you sell a dangerous product you carry for the rest of your life the burden yeah. of the use of that product you're a weapons manufacturer and you and you you know the people who die that's that's partly on you as the person who manufactured it same with fossil fuels uh and so norway has a has a debt as well the difference is that norway contributes more and and supports the loss and damage fund more but we will turn into the u.s soon enough where we suddenly realize how much debt we owe and suddenly we're like oh crap okay we shouldn't be paying into this so this is not adaptation. This is not paying other countries to help, you know, build a higher houses so they don't get sucked under floodwaters. This is just cash that you give to people who lost and died from climate impacts. This is really the toughest new thing. Uh, and one of the best writers, one of the best advocates, activists on this um, is a guy called Salim Al-Huq, H-U-Q, uh um bangladeshi guy he died recently he died tragically uh the week before cop uh and only 71 or something right yeah yeah um real shame um and and i just my final thing is just look up loss and damage look up the work of salimul salim you know amazing guy um you know he really has been pushing for this and if if nothing else um just look into what the u.s has been doing because it's certainly in terms of the ratio between like who was evil at COP and who got recognized as, as being evil, the US has really gotten away with quite a lot, I think. <laughs> and it's also worth noting so. that 
some mm. new research about the European imperial powers, long-term impact on the climate has mm. produced new numbers to show that Britain's responsibility is far beyond its rah-rah industrial revolution to include countries it enslaved and occupied and colonized, depending on... This your is definitions. the carbon brief um, one, yeah, yeah. And then it gets also up to about number four in history in terms of emissions, right? I, I, that's on my list of read after COP, <laughs> but read I will read COP, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I was like you, but not as much as you and not with as much as skill on my part, flooded by the number of reports, many of which yeah. ended up just doing slightly different graphic representations of the same data. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But because yeah. I was looking for things I could show students that would make them into socialists, I... <laughs> I would say, remember that graph we looked at on Monday? Here's a better one. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> but you can see that it's saying the same thing, you know, uh -huh. and they're thinking, huh? but um, anyway. oh, I hope you converted them. Yes, I'm, I don't know. Anyway, Kitan, thank you very, very much. It was fantastic speaking to you. And I'd, I'd like to suggest something to you. One that you return to the pod to talk about your own work again, but also that maybe we could get an interesting round table of people you work with or have worked with or would like to work with. And we could construct a discussion uh, in the pod about some of these issues. doesn't have to be the things that I'm particularly driven by, like greenwashing and Netflix and Amazon and Apple as evil. <laughs> <laughs> it could be about much broader issues or more tightly uh, focused ones. So have a think about that. And if you're interested, it might be a fun thing for us to do. Yeah. That sounds splendid. We'd definitely do that. Yeah. So thank you again very, very much. <laughs> thank you.